Welcome to the Expert Series brought to you by the Lupus Foundation of America. Our health education team is here to bring you experts in lupus to discuss topics to help you live better. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. My name is Lauren and I'll be your host. This month we are celebrating Lupus Awareness Month and if you're listening in, I hope that you will find our discussion helpful to you as we try to address the question, could it be lupus? As many of our listeners already know, getting an early and accurate lupus diagnosis is critical to preventing long-term consequences of the disease. And we know that sometimes when establishing care with new medical providers, diagnostic tests may be repeated, even if you already have a lupus diagnosis. So we will also discuss how people already diagnosed with lupus can play an important role in their own lupus care and help others who need to get an early and accurate lupus diagnosis. A special thank you to Exogen for being our sponsor of the program today. The need for improved lab tests promoted the Lupus Foundation of America to support early research on the development of cell-bound complement activation products known as CB caps. CB caps are now the cornerstone of Exogen's Avise CTD test for diagnosis and Avise SLE monitor used to evaluate disease activity in lupus patients. More about Avise can be found at www.avivetest.com. Now, we are very excited to welcome our guest today to talk about labs and clinical assessments that can help in diagnosing lupus, Dr. Bancoli. Dr. Adebenga Bancoli is Division Chief and Fellowship Program Director at Carilion Clinic and Associate Professor at Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine in Roanoke, Virginia. Dr. Ben Coley did his Internal Medicine Rheumatology Fellowship in SUNY Downstate, New York City, and has been practicing in Roanoke, Virginia ever since. He has a special interest in patient-centric collaborative care for people with lupus. His clinic has been involved in a significant amount of lupus-specific clinical trials lately and really looks forward to publishing exciting updates soon on their research. Thank you, Dr. Ben Coley, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So it's Lupus Awareness Month. And I'm guessing that means there are a lot of people listening in today who are new to lupus or asking themselves the question, could it be lupus? And I want to jump right in. So I want to ask you some of the basics about diagnosing lupus. When someone comes into your office, say they bring a list of concerns that they've already had, maybe they've got some symptoms. What is your typical appointment like for that first visit? And what kinds of questions do you ask or what kind of assessments do you make? Thank you so much. Um, th- this actually is a very important question because you do want to set the stage um, when you're going to visit your doctor. I recommend people take a list with them of things that they don't want to forget. Um, many a times when you're sitting down in front of the doctor, especially a new doctor that you may not know, uh, one has a tendency to forget things, um, overlook things, or be sidetracked as the conversation goes along meaning that when you get home or out of the office, you realize there are things that you haven't mentioned. So a list of concerns is very important. I'm lucky. Um, Our visits, at least the very first visit, um, uh, we're allocated up to 30 minutes. um, And many a times that initial visit can take longer than that for us to, to get together all the information that we need. The story Um, that the patient gives us is probably what's most important. And I usually approach the visit in three separate buckets. The most important to me is the patient's concern. What is your concern? Why do you think you need to see rheumatology? What's going on from your viewpoint? 
The second concern, which is important but not quite as important as a patient's concern, is why did your primary or your referring doctor think that you needed to see a rheumatologist? And my hope is that both of those things are the same. I was concerned about knee pain, and my doctor referred me to rheumatology to work you know, to work for lupus. Maybe the knee pain is not lupus. So we need to make sure that we address both the patient's concern and the doctor's concern. That way around, we've addressed all parties' interests. And finally, I, I have a sort of a five or 10 minute where things that have arisen during the conversation that are of concern to me, I then get to ask, oh, you know, you mentioned this along the way. Let's go back to that so I can understand that more fully. And that way around, even my concerns are satisfied. I, I sort of think I'm the least important in the three, but I want to be sure that all three components are addressed. A common pr a problem that patients have is pain, and that tends to be a common reason for people to see their primary care provider. In fact, more than 50% of the visits to the primary care provider is for pain. And of course, a lot of rheumatological diseases, including lupus, can cause pain. And the aim of the visit is to differentiate a lupus-related issue from a non-lupus-related issue. That's really helpful. I really like how you split into three buckets in how the patient's concerns and the referring physician's concerns are of driving importance for how to start out this conversation and to understand why they're there in the first place. Because we know that labs are helpful and a lot of people will have these lab tests. We know that there are multiple kinds that can be used for diagnosing lupus. You know, everyone's heard of the ANA. Chances are most people listening today have heard about the ANA or the anti-row, anti-law. There's also the advised test. So when you are looking in this first visit for symptoms or concerns that could be lupus, what kind of lupus tests would you typically run? Are there specific panels or tests that you may run in the first visit or maybe run after the first visit, how does that usually look? Another very, very good question. There's almost no point in doing any blood tests until you've heard his or her story. Um, without the history of what the problem is, you can't choose the test that's appropriate. The presence of antibodies themselves are not the same thing as saying somebody has a disease. And I always use opposite examples. So if I'm seeing a female patient, then I would say if your PSA was elevated, your prostate antigen was elevated, it does not mean you have cancer. We need to confirm that because certainly you as a woman can't have cancer. And I would use the opposite um, when I'm dealing with men. And that way around people understand that the presence of the test doesn't necessitate a diagnosis. In fact, tests can only tell us when you don't have disease, so that if your ANA is negative, I can say with a relative degree of certainty that you don't have lupus, but if it's positive, you may just have a positive antibody without having lupus. So once we've got your story together, then the ANA test is a good screening test, and if you screen negative, then we can put the lupus story essentially to bed not completely, but essentially to bed, and we can worry about other things. If the ANA test is positive, then I would want to look for specific antibodies that would indicate which disease we need to be concerned about. I'm sure most of us by now have heard about anti-SMITS antibody or double-stranded DNA antibody being more lupus-specific, 
and the anti-rho and the anti-lar antibody that you mentioned earlier would be more specific for Jogren syndrome. The reason mm -hmm. why I find this important is, for example, um, we used to think some people had what we call ANA-negative lupus because they may have children who have what we call neonatal lupus, but we now know that neonatal lupus is not actually systemic lupus erythematosus, but is a disease related to SSA, SSB antibody or anti-Rho mm -hmm. anti antibodies, which actually is Jogren syndrome. And that's why, again, the story is important. So if someone comes in, my eyes are dry, my mouth is dry, I wouldn't think of lupus, I would think mm -hmm. of Jogren's. Gotcha, that's really helpful. So the story is really important. This is something that we, so at the health education specialist, often will get people calling in kind of in preparation for their doctor's visit um, because maybe they have an appointment with a rheumatologist after seeing their primary care and they they want to help formulate and put together the their symptoms into a way that, that makes sense. Very unique that you have 30 minutes of that initial appointment um, to get the whole story. And so I think I, I like I like your approach. I think it seems very uh, comprehensive. If patients have the opportunity to put blood tests together, the more important blood tests actually would be what we sometimes call routine testing. So if we can get a complete blood count, um, if we look at the lupus diagnostic panel, there are three tests on that complete blood count that are actually on the diagnostic criteria for lupus. So for example, hemolytic anemia, a low platelet count, or a low white count. Mm -hmm. If you could also get a comprehensive metabolic panel, we can also see your kidney tests, we can see your albumin. And I tell my patients that that's more important as an indicator of whether somebody has active lupus than antibodies in general. Well, that makes sense, because you can actually see if there's any kind of involvement or, or inflammation and damage happening in the body, right? If you're checking exactly. those other labs. Exactly. Which is, right. a, which is a concern you can start to address, I'm, I'm guessing, through a treatment plan. Exactly right. And many a times you may not even need to wait. So if there's already protein in the urine, we can start to use ACE inhibitors while we're waiting for the other blood tests to come through. Should they anticipate having in their first visit with the rheumatologist, having all those labs done, or do you typically do a couple of tests and then schedule for a follow-up in three or six months? I routinely do everything together. Um, I like one of the things that uh, I, I heard one of the former presidents saying, he said we should be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. So I'll do all the blood tests together because mm -hmm. lupus is very serious. If you wait on an ANA, which may take a few days, and before the patient comes back in, the patient may have ongoing damage. So I like to do all the tests together. So I would do a CBC, a CMP, complements ANA, everything all at the same time, and then address the results as they come through, making sure to focus on anything that's indicative of ongoing damage or potential life-threatening complications. And anything that's less important, you know, I, I can afford to wait for the next visit. But routinely, we'll be calling the patients within a week of us seeing them initially with initial results saying, look, you know, your tests show the following and we need to do whatever the plan needs to be or change to whatever it needs to be to keep the patient safe. That makes total sense. That's really, that's good to hear. I love how you laid it all out there. 
so a lot of folks have a really hard time getting diagnosed. We, we know through studies that it's taken an average of six years and up to, you know, four or five, six different physicians for people who have signs and symptoms of lupus or have concerns about lupus to actually get a diagnosis. So um, as an expert in the field of lupus, what do you see as these obstacles to diagnosing lupus? There are a number of, of, of things that stop a prompt and I like the way you phrase it, accurate diagnoses. Um, lupus is not quite as common as what we think. So a good proportion of people may be told they have lupus and they don't, whereas some other people who have lupus may not know. So it, it, it cuts mm -hmm. both ways. Some people are diagnosed with lupus as inaccurately. And of course, in some other people, lupus is missed. And I think a high suspicion from the viewpoint of your doctor um, really is probably the most important thing because you can be screened to exclude the disease and that can then set your mind at ease. Unfortunately, it doesn't confirm that you have it. It just lets us know you're negative, you don't have it, you need further workup with a rheumatologist. One of the major areas that we talk about is the fact it can affect lots of different places in the body, lots of different organs. But there are some organs that are relatively commonly affected, even if others are, you know, are being affected as well. So the skin, the hair, you know, those tend to be relatively common. Um, and, and I would look to those if, if that's present, even if there's none of the other symptoms, then I would say someone should be very suspicious. And if we have lots of other symptoms, we can always go back and look at the skin, the hair, the, you know, the mouth, the nose, because if those are present and you've got 19, 20 other symptoms, you can use those anchor symptoms of the skin to tie those other areas in without sort of getting sidetracked about this person had a seizure, should we send to neurology, this person has something else. Because if you see the skin rash and you see hair loss, it really should make you think of lupus. The other thing I would mention is health disparities. And here it's the opposite of what we would expect. So normally when we talk about health disparities, we're talking about people in whom don't have access to care or may have reduced access to care. But here what we mean is thinking about lupus in groups that don't normally have lupus or normally that you would normally suspect lupus in. So for example, older patients, because lupus is, tends to be a younger female disease, and then of course children, because lupus tends to be a female predominant mm -hmm. disease, males also are marginalized in this particular disease type because we don't always think about it in them. Unfortunately, lupus is a disease of women of color, and I like to say menstruating women of color. So we really think about people between the ages of 14 you know, to 55 of color, and that includes everybody from African origin, African Americans, Native um, Americans, um, Far East Asians. Anybody of color is at a much higher risk than people not of color. And of course, the highest being in people of um, African-American descent or African descent. And slowly, 
sort of reducing as you go across um, the ethnic groups. And once we think of those people, we would catch a good number of those. I think it's also a good idea to be aware of illnesses in your family, because that can also point the doctors to whether they should suspect lupus or whether they should suspect something else. Wow, that's really a really good insight. So, you know, kind of what your what is your risk based upon family, your symptoms, and even even race, since we know that it, it does affect women of color two to three times more than the general population. So that is a Absolutely. huge huge disparity. Is is there a Absolutely. difference in diagnosing people of different groups, say men versus women, white women versus African-American women? Is there anything that you are aware of whenever you're diagnosing that you want to pass on to folks listening in? Absolutely. Um, so not only is lupus more common in people of color, it also tends to be more severe and affects more organs that are essential to life. Um, so people of color will have a higher incidence of lupus-related kidney disease, for example. Mm. And when they have that, it also is more severe and therefore more difficult to treat. Um, the issue there is that, of course, it leads to people needing hemodialysis or kidney transplant. So it then has a another impact on your ability to work, earn a wage, really lead a normal life. If you've got to go to hemodialysis, you know, two, three times a week for four hours at a time, it's very oh, yeah. difficult to have a normal life with that. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, lupus tends to be more destructive in people of color. So when they have skin affectation, the, the skin tends to heal with dispigmentation, either darker or lighter spots. So when you see them, it is quite obvious. And that, of course, affects the way people interact with you and the way you interact with yourself. Um, when you wake up and you look at yourself in the mirror first thing in the morning, seeing scars and disfigurement may not be um, a pleasing thing, um, especially the way people may react to that. Um, that definitely will have an effect on your well-being as a human being. Um, and as a result, I tend to feel that we need to be a little bit more aggressive um, in people of color, just to make sure that everything is controlled as well as it possibly can be. Men, on the other hand, tend to have fewer symptoms and it can easily be overlooked. And men also have a slightly higher incidence of lupus nephritis. Um, and because there may be fewer symptoms, there's also a carve out in the diagnostic criteria for lupus so that you could only have kidney disease and a positive ANA or a positive double-stranded DNA and be diagnosed with lupus. I know most mm -hmm. of us already know about the four out of 11, but in that particular carve-out, you don't need four symptoms. We're okay with you just having kidney disease and a positive ANA or double-stranded DNA. That's, I'm really glad that you brought that up because there are a lot of people who will reach out to us and they'll say, you know, they're, they're very by the book for those the criteria that they've seen, um, and they say, I almost have enough criteria to meet lupus diagnosis. But what I'm hearing from you is that it really depends on what symptoms that they're having, what kind of organ involvement there is, and really a skilled provider who will take it as a comprehensive look 
of their medical history, their family history, their labs, but also their symptoms to make that diagnosis. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. In fact, for people who do drug trials and um, patient research-related things, we actually have what we call incomplete lupus, where, yes, they don't have the four, but you're pretty sure that this is going, you know, this mm -hmm. is lupus, and you can treat them as such. I think one of the other areas of concern is where patients have what we call type 2 symptoms, or sometimes it's referred to as non-inflammatory symptoms that can be attributed to lupus. The problem with the type 2 symptoms is lots of things cause those same sort of symptoms. Mm -hmm. so fatigue, tiredness, muscle pains, joint pains, brain fogging, you know, memory issues. If you have lupus type 1 symptoms, so you have inflammatory symptoms like kidney disease, skin rash, then yes, they should be tied together because they're related. But of course, lots of things can cause those type 2 symptoms. So the presence of type 2 symptoms alone is not enough to make me suspect lupus. You must have some symptoms that is specific to lupus before we would then start looking at things like fever, you know, tiredness, sleep issues, because a lot of chronic illnesses can cause those same sort of symptoms through the same pathway, actually, through the same side of um, the same chemicals your body produces. Mm -hmm. And I would liken that to somebody having flu-like symptoms. If they have nasal congestion and they're sneezing and coughing, then the fever is probably going to be related to those flu-like symptoms. If they don't have that, then you really are at a loss to say what's causing those symptoms because it could be anything. That can be really frustrating, I think, from the patient's perspective as well. But that it's good to hear that you say and acknowledge that. You know, that can be very difficult. And, and it's validating for folks out there who are maybe having those harder-to-pin-down symptoms. Absolutely. There's there's no doubt that those symptoms are there. It's just a case of attributing them to a cause. And sometimes that can take a long time. And that contributes to that maybe longer diagnosis timeline as well, I, I would assume. That's right. So what about folks who were diagnosed with lupus from maybe one provider and say they've moved states or they've moved clinics or maybe they're the clinic closed, they have to find a new rheumatologist. I know since it's so hard to establish care, it can be kind of scary when you lose that trusted rheumatologist relationship. Do you have any suggestions for people who are in this situation? How can they move forward in their treatment plan as seamlessly as possible? I think the, the first step is provider communication. The electronic medical records don't necessarily communicate with each other. So anything that mm -hmm. we can do to make that more seamless, I think, is very important. So, for example, if you know the name of your new doctor, you can get your old notes sent over to them. Um, we don't want to swamp them, you know, and send over 10 years of notes for them to read. <laughs> but at least a summary from your last mm -hmm. doctor um, going over how the diagnosis was established, what treatments that you've had, what complications have arisen, and what the hopes and the goals are for future therapy. I think that would not go amiss. That That's something that's useful. Mm -hmm. um, 
And of course, if you're not able to do that, um, then a summary from your doctor that you can hold until you have a new doctor that, to whom you can give that to. I also think objectively, when you have the opportunity to see a new doctor, it allows you to have what I call fresh eye syndrome. Um, your old doctor or previous doctor, we tend to continue the same things as we think it's working and you're doing quite mm -hmm. well. But even in somebody who has cancer, chemotherapy is not continued forever. So when you see a new doctor, I always say there's nothing wrong with seeing if you need ongoing therapy. And you may do. But what wonderful news it is to tell someone, you know, you've been really well treated and we don't need to continue the treatment now. If we look at the guidelines for something like lupus nephritis, which I tend to think of as one of the more aggressive manifestations, that only needs to be treated for three to five years and then you can reevaluate, hey, do we need ongoing therapy? Can I lower the doses of some of these medicines? Can I discontinue one and leave the patient on one or two? Um, the fact that you needed a lot of medicines up front doesn't necessarily mean that you need that forever. It doesn't mean that your new doctor's wrong or right, and it doesn't mean that your previous doctor's wrong or right. It just means that your treatment should be reevaluated at some point in time to ensure that you still need exactly what you were on from the first day all the way into the last day of your life. So it seems like really good comprehensive care includes evaluation and reevaluation on treatments to make sure that it's the right thing going forward, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Because we have to keep in mind that all of these medicines really have quite severe complications. I would go as far as to say prednisone is probably the one with the mm. most severe complications. Um, so you do want to be reevaluated intermittently, you know, um, and there are good guidelines determining when that should be done. So you shouldn't be treated for six months and someone says, oh, let's see if we can get rid of, you know, that really is too soon. But as long as there's a structured approach, and I would say when there's a forced change. So I had to move somewhere and I was out of my meds for two, three weeks. Oh, that's a good opportunity for us to reevaluate. My insurance, I mean, the donut hole and, you know, the, the medicine is too expensive and I really can't afford it. Good opportunity to reevaluate to see if we can get you on something mm -hmm. easier for you. Mm -hmm. and, and, you and you can use labs sometimes to reevaluate organ involvement for that as well, or even the effectiveness of the medicine, right? That's right. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. blood, urine test. But I would say more importantly, the story and the physical examination. Wow, this is really helpful. I have one last question, if, if you could um, just help us out one, with one more. Um, so for people that are listening in, because they have a loved one who has lupus or someone that they know who might have lupus, what is the best way, in your opinion, of, of getting all of this information together and helping to someone to take a more proactive role while getting diagnosed. Now, this is a very, very interesting and delicate question because you do not want to overstep the mark with your loved one, especially if they're over 18. 
if they're your, you know, if it's your child or dependent, um, you can usually cajole them into whatever you think is appropriate. But if they're an adult, um, they do have the right to make their own decisions. And it can be a little difficult to apply pressure if they don't think that's what they want. Um, so usually I have two different approaches. One for somebody who's a dependent, and that could be, you know, um, an, an elder dependent who, you know, is needing me for some, you know, activity of daily living or a child. And that tend to be more along the lines of, oh, we should get this sorted out. You know, I'm going to follow you to your appointment and we're going to discuss this with the doctor. But I can imagine that this question really pertains to the person who's over 18 who can then decide whether they want me there or not. And I think mm -hmm. they're having a open conversation with them about my concerns as a sibling, a parent, um, a well-wisher um, is very important in them understanding what they may not be able to see about themselves. Sometimes people see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And the ability to put that to your loved one is important in directing them along the path that you think may be valuable to them. But we have to remember that my value may be different from your values. And if you feel something's important, it doesn't mean that I have to think it's important. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, by the time most people get symptoms, I think most of them will be open to listening to what you have to say. But listening starts with, uh, uh, um, speaking with them starts with you listening to what their concerns are and seeing if both of your concerns can be along the same path. If you're concerned about their long-term well-being, you may be able to relate that to their, their current concern about a particular type of joint pain or a particular type of kidney symptom or skin finding. I know you're worried about your skin rash, but if we don't look after it, you may have scars that may affect you in 20 years' time. I think we should get this addressed. So that if you can make your concern their concern, it's much easier for them to agree with you or at least be more willing to get that looked into. Wow, that is really helpful. And you are so right. What a delicate balance of care and information that goes into helping loved ones who, who do have these concerns. Thank you so much for, for sharing your approach, your guidance. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice talking to all of you. And happy Lupus Month, and I hope everybody's wearing purple. Thank you so much, Dr. Ben Coley, for your time today. This has really been an excellent discussion, and I'm very pleased we had the chance to really dive into the topic of could it be lupus. For those of you listening in, to access more information about diagnostic tools for lupus, please find more information on the National Resource Center on Lupus by visiting lupus.org forward slash resources. In the coming weeks, we will be sharing survey findings that evaluate the lupus diagnosis journey. These findings will be available at lupus.org. For the latest information on lupus and COVID, please go to lupus.org forward slash coronavirus. To listen to the additional episodes of the expert series, you can visit lupus.org forward slash the expert series, where you can also subscribe to get alerts when podcasts are released. And if you'd like to speak with one of our health education specialists, you can go to lupus.org forward slash health educator 
or call 1-800-558-0121, extension 136. And finally, to connect with others with lupus from all over the world, I invite you to check out our online support community, Lupus Connect, where you can talk with others, find emotional support, and discuss practical insights for coping with the daily challenges of lupus. You can find the community at lupus.org forward slash lupusconnect. Thank you and have a wonderful day.